0: Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. Monday, October 30th, 2023, we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska.
1: And I'm Guy Hero, and this week we're mixinian it up, celebrating Halloween in an agnathan fashion, talking about the hagfish. That was awesome guy. Thanks. <laughs> Divine inspiration at the last minute gave that one to me. Mm, Yeah, I like that.
0: (laughs) We've got two great guests, Dr. Fudge and Dr. Grubbs. Dr. Fudge is from the Comparative Biomaterials Lab at Chapman University, and Dean Grubbs is with Florida State University's Coastal and Marine Laboratory. So welcome to both of you, and we are super excited to chat with you.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here.
0: So I've got a lot of questions. I think Guy does too, but let's first start with some real basics. How would you be able to tell you've got a hagfish in hand? where you'd be able to say like, yes, I'm sure this is a hagfish, not an eel, not a lamprey. And what would it feel like to hold
2: one? Well, the first thing everybody talks about is that they're incredibly slimy. In the uh, Gulf of Mexico, we actually know which genus we have even by just how sticky the slime oh. is on our hands when
0: okay. we pick
2: them up. We actually catch them in traps. And we know we have hagfish before we ever see them because the trap will come up completely enclosed in a cocoon of slime. When we bring them on the deck of the ship, if we have Maxine, which is Maxine McMillany is the species we get, it's very sort of stringy slime that you really have difficulty getting off of your hands. It just sticks Aww. to everything, it is horribly disgusting and nasty. <laughs> and if you have the other genus, which is Eptotretis, there are two species of we get, those, it's more of a gooey slime hmm. rather than a stringy slime. When it gets all over your hands, you can actually sling your hand and sling the up to treatus slime off of your hand. Oh my the gosh. Of the chip, and then everybody slips and slides on it, but you
3: can't do that with a mixed in <laughs> slime. That's amazing. I'm very intrigued by Dean's story about being able to tell the hagfish apart by their slime. So I work mostly on hagfish slime. And the two species we've looked at in terms of differences in the properties of their slime and the biochemistry, they have some really interesting differences. Mm -hmm. But that's amazing to me that you can tell four species apart just by their slime. At least the genera. I can tell the genera apart. I don't know that I can tell. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so cool. (laughs) That's so cool. Dean is right that the first thing is the slime. If someone hands you this animal or you pull it out of a bucket and you have about a liter or a kilo of slime hanging off of it, then it's only a hagfish. There's no other species that can do that. In terms of morphology, there's some very unique things about hagfish. They have no scales. They have slime glands down both sides of their body, which are quite obvious, and that's where the slime is oozing out of. They have a very prominent nostril, one nostril on the front of their head. They have gill apertures, depending on the species and the genus. Down the side, that can be a little bit like a lamprey, but in the genus Maxini, they only have one gill opening on either side, even though they okay. have multiple gills. Lots of differences between hagfish and other species, other groups. we have also
2: got some crazy internal differences, too. All vertebrates, except for hagfish and lampreys, have three semicircular canals in their inner ears. That's how we know what's up and down and balance and gravity and everything else Hagfish only have one; they have one semicircular canal, and they don't even have a real cerebellum, which is the main part of the brain that we use for balance. Hmm. And so, when you think about that, and you look at them on film in the deep sea, they should be way more disoriented than they appear to be, really, because you know there's video of them actually like chasing fishes down burrows. They're they're pretty adept, they're which is
1: amazing. pretty Dang, amazing. Yeah. To me. The thing that shocks me whenever I see hagfish emitting this slime is just the sheer volume. It's almost like there's more slime than there is hagfish. So how do they do that? How is that possible?
3: Yeah, there's definitely more slime than there is hagfish. So, you know, like 150 gram hagfish can make about a liter or a kilo of slime in a fraction of a second. Wow. So with high-speed video, we know that it takes about... 100 to 400 milliseconds for them to make about a liter of slime. Wow. The vast majority of it is water, is seawater. How do they do that? How do they organize a kilo of water in a fraction of a second? And that's something we're still working on. It's a pretty mysterious process. If you look at the composition of the slime after it's set up, and you actually measure how much of the stuff that comes out of the hagfish is in the slime, it's vanishingly low concentration. There's these fibers, which Dean alluded to earlier, they're sort of like spider silk fibers. There's about 20 milligrams of fibers in a liter. So I don't know if you have a sense of what a milligram is, but like a 10 milligram pill that you might take as a tiny little pill. So two of those of fibers, and then there's mucus, which is about the same, about 20 milligrams dry weight. And together that, 40 milligrams of stuff organizes a liter of slime.
0: That is insane.
3: There's two components of the slime. There's the mucusy component, and we actually don't know what the molecules are that make up the mucus. That will Mm -hmm. change in the next year or so because we're sequencing some transcriptomic data from slime glands very soon. But we've spent most of our time looking at the fibrous component of the slime those actually are related to keratin. This is a large family of proteins called intermediate filament proteins. And those are proteins that make up the fibrous component of hair, but also skin. And they're also really abundant in pretty much every cell of your body. They give sort of mechanical integrity to many of your cells. And hagfishes have taken this cytoskeletal polymer and done an amazing thing with it. So, These fibers are built within a single cell. So it's a really big cell. It's about 150 microns long, which is huge for a cell. And they build this structure called a skein, like a bundle of wool fibers. And these are the things that unravel in 100 milliseconds to 400 milliseconds. So they go from 150 microns long to their full unraveled length of 150 millimeters Wow. It's a thousand fold longer in a fraction of a second. That's one of the things that's been keeping us up at night. Is it
1: stretch out all the way or does it get tangled up a little bit?
3: It doesn't get tangled. That's one of the amazing things. And it's one fiber. so oh. Continuous, perfectly coiled. So then the other question that keeps me up is uh, how do they make it? How do you make 15 centimeter long fiber inside a microscopic cell that's perfect and mechanically amazing like a spider silk that wow. we do not understand.
0: That's going to keep me up. We'll have to check in with y'all next year. I'm assuming they emit the slime to protect themselves?
3: Yeah. So there's you know a lot of hypotheses that have been thrown out, but the strongest one is that it's a, a defensive mechanism. So if you grab a hagfish, it will slime. If a fish bites a hagfish, it will slime. There are some amazing videos out there that have been published by a group in New Zealand of, I think it's nine different species of hagfish coming in through a baited camera. And, you know, they get drawn in by the bait, but then they see the hagfish or sense the hagfish. They bite the hagfish. They get a mouthful and and gill full of slime and swim away, horrified. And (laughs) the hagfish is not even harmed. So they seem to be immune to predation by fish, which is kind of an extraordinary thing, including sharks. We've looked in the
2: stomachs and studied the diet of probably six different genera of deep sea sharks that overlap. And where we catch them is where we also catch hagfish. And we've never seen a hagfish in the stomach of one of those sharks, not a single one.
0: How do they clean themselves off? Is this slime like attached to their body or like once they've slimed something, how do they get rid of the slime and continue on their day?
3: One of the things we learned from high-speed video of the, the sliming phenomenon, one of the first things we noticed was that they don't tend to become enveloped in the slime. They tend to sort of shoot the slime out and then okay. sort of do a maneuver and go the other way. They okay. tend to leave the slime behind. It is possible that, that, that they could become trapped in their slime. And when that happens, they tie their body in a knot and then they pass their Body through the knot, which basically wipes the slime off.
2: When we catch them on the in the traps to tell the different species within a single genus, we have to count the number of slime pores. That's one of the main morphological mm-hmm. characters we use. So imagine being on a rolling ship, a hundred slimy hagfish, and you're counting whether it has between 62 and 69 slime pores. Oh or my between, gosh. Between, you know, 47 and 56 slime pores. So when we pull hanging over the of, deck
0: on that one, yeah. No. <laughs> and
2: whenever we pull each one out of the trap, and that trap is just filled with slime, and you pull a hagfish out, the slime just sloughs right off of them, okay. Much easier than it sloughs off of you,
1: yeah. Huh. So, is there anything else about their physiology that is sort of acts as a defense mechanism? Because you think about sharks, you think about the teeth being able to kind of puncture, so even if you're getting this goo in the mouth and getting it clogged up in the gills. You could think that maybe the hagfish would sustain some damage. Is there any other thing preventing that?
3: And We did a study a few years ago where we asked exactly that question. So there's this amazing video of a kite fin shark coming in, biting a hagfish, getting repelled with a mouthful of slime. That was the first ever video in the wild of a predator getting slimed by a hagfish and repelled. The more we watched it, the more interested we got in how the hagfish actually survives that encounter. So the timing is interesting. So the the shark comes in, bites the hagfish, the hagfish makes the slime, and then the shark leaves. So the question is, how does the hagfish survive being bitten by the shark? We tested the hypothesis that hagfish skin is amazingly puncture resistant. And the answer is, it's not. It's about the same as other fish skin of that thickness. So we had to come up with a new weirder hypothesis, which we Mm -hmm. think is right, which is that the teeth can puncture the skin, but the bizarre body design of hagfishes, which we call flaccid design, allows the body to sort of slip out of the way. There's actually a lot of space between the skin and the rest of the body. Okay. And so if a tooth does puncture, the body just kind of squishes out of the way and, and is not harmed. So we actually tested this idea with shark teeth in the lab and freshly dead hagfish, and it holds up really well experimentally. Wow. I think there's a secondary
2: hypothesis that probably plays a role too. I've probably tagged 30,000 sharks and been bitten quite a few times. And one of the things you notice is everybody thinks they just bite. They really don't. Within milliseconds, they test what they're biting. We wear these thin... Rubber Atlas gloves when we're tagging and I've actually left those gloves in the mouths of of dozens of sharks that went to bite me and when they make contact with something, they slow down just enough to process instantly what that is they're biting and see whether they want to come all the way through with that bite because they don't want to bite something that might harm them. They end up biting the glove, but they don't get us because I'm able to get my hand out of the shark's mouth in time and just leave the glove in the, in the shark's mouth. And it, it seems like a similar thing is probably happening with those hagfish. Combination of the morphology and invasiveness and uh, texture of the hagfish that Doug described combined with the shark's actual predatory motion, biomechanic.
0: Okay. Interesting. Super Interesting. So where are hagfish found across the globe? How many species, kind of where are they found on the map and what kind of habitat are they using?
2: It's probably close to 80 species globally, about 77 species described, something like that. In our part of the world, in the the Gulf of Mexico, there are three described species there. One species of Maxine, the genus that most people are familiar with because Maxine glutinosis is the one that Most people have dissected in some class or something. Mm -hmm. And so we have Maxine McMillany. It's our deepest species. They're cold water animals. For the Gulf of Mexico, they're going to be relatively deep. Maxine McMillany is our deepest one. We usually see it at about 900 to 1,200 meters deep, something like that. Occasionally a little bit shallower, maybe 800 meters deep. And then we have two species of Eptatritus, Eptatritus springeri and Eptatritus minor. The shallowest, that one's usually 400 to 600 meters, and then Eptatritus springeri is kind of in the middle. And so they're living at temperatures that are essentially below about 7 degrees Celsius. There's probably, almost certainly, a fourth undescribed species in the Gulf of Mexico, and I suspect there are others around the world, as as common with most deep sea AXA. We caught one that when we were doing some genetics work on hagfish in the Gulf of Mexico, one that was an outlier that didn't fit mm-hmm. anything. And then we had I, I ID'd it as Epstria springer eye, but then went back to look at the photos. It was clearly an outlier in size. Also, it was 89 centimeters long, mm-hmm. like Three feet long, which is huge for a hagfish. We had never had one within 20 centimeters of that one, so we, oh
0: wow, okay. We
2: should have recognized it on the ship that it was something weird. We didn't. We collected a, a tissue sample from it, and we have photos of it, but we've never caught another one. So it's a mystery. Uh,
3: that's cool. So there's another one out there.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Doug, how about you? What about in your neck of the woods?
3: Yeah. So in California, there's the Pacific hagfish, which is um, from the genus Eptatretus. So that's Eptatretus stoutii. And that occurs from about 100 meters down to, I would say, 600 meters. And then it gives way to another Eptatretus species, Eptatretus deni, which occurs from 600 meters down really deep. Actually, the deepest hagfish ever caught was an Eptatretus deni at 2,700 okay. meters.
0: Wow. So they're kind of segregating themselves a little bit, it sounds like.
3: Yeah, and they are each other's closest living relatives as well mm-hmm. as far as we know so it kind of makes sense that one of them evolved into the other. Yeah. Just generally speaking, we don't usually get them shallower than 100 unless it's really cold water and again down to about 3,000 meters we, We've never caught hagfish below 3,000 meters. I will uh, just say a couple words about some biodiversity work that we've been doing in the Galapagos that's fairly new so we went mm-hmm. there to collect the four species that were described there um, because we were interested in in studying the slime and and coming at it from a comparative approach. And we ended up catching six species and only two of them were the described ones. So four of them were new species. That's cool. So now there's eight described species in the Galapagos, which is a pretty small place. We just went back there this summer we think we got one more, one more new species, so it m- may be up to nine. Okay. And that brings the total worldwide up to 90 species now. Wow. Yeah.
1: 90 and counting. When I was in ichthyology, I was introduced to the debate about the cyclostome hypothesis versus the vertebrate <laughs> hypothesis. I was wondering if you guys could shine any light on that. And then also just tell us, why is this group of fishes of such interest to evolutionary biologists?
2: So I think it's well-established now that they're vertebrates.
3: Yeah. So the cyclostome hypothesis basically says that hagfishes and lampreys form a monophyletic group, which makes sense. They're both agnathans or jawless fishes. And then the competing hypothesis was that actually lampreys are more closely related to the other vertebrates. And the jawed vertebrates, and it seems like we've gone back and forth over the last few decades on which hypothesis seems to be favored. But right now, especially from molecular work and some new fossil work, it seems like the cyclostome hypothesis is is going to win out. And what that means is that hagfishes and lampreys do share a common agnathan ancestor. I'll just say one thing about hagfish fossils, which is that there are very few. So because they don't have bones. They don't fossilize well. So there's two fossils that have been described in the literature. And
0: how similar are those to what we see today?
3: One of them is 330-ish million years old, and that one doesn't have slime glands.
0: Way older than the dinosaurs. There were, what, 65 (laughs) big ones people are familiar with? Yeah, okay.
3: And then the other one is a lot younger. More recent is, I think, 130 million years old, and that one does have slime glands. Okay. Not to frame everything in terms of slime. but
0: Yeah, yeah. that's what we're here for, the slime. Goodbye. So <laughs> even if the
1: cyclostome hypothesis is right, Dean is talking about they are still vertebrates. And I, my, my question about why evolutionary biologists are so interested in them is still out there. So I'm curious what you think on that, Dean.
2: They share common answers with the earliest of the rest of the vertebrate. Lineage, and so they can act as a model for studying basically everything from embryology, you know, to evolutionary biology uh, for the rest of the vertebrate line. And if we want to know more about the evolutionary history of our own lineage, that's as far back as we can really go with any extant taxa. Mm-hmm. And the question about the cyclostome versus the definite hypotheses has been debated for years: whether we should classify hagfishes as, and, and lampreys, for that matter, as vertebrates or not. Mm-hmm. And this actually came up as, a, as an interesting thing for me because we actually were trying to do some captive ex- experiments with hagfish. And of course, if you work in any institution that gets federal funding, you have to get an institutional mm. animal care and use committee protocol to work on vertebrates. Ah. You don't, you don't okay. on non-vertebrates. Ah. And so for the first few years, I was able to do it without a permit. The the prevailing hypothesis was that they were not vertebrates. Subsequently, papers came out that suggested they are indeed primitive vertebrates. And so then I had to get an IACUC protocol. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs)
0: I've seen some really cool videos in the past of these fish feeding on like a whale fall. Can you or one of you describe kind of their eating habits and maybe that one in particular?
2: Their jawless morphology is really interesting because, you know, they don't have jaws, obviously. But instead, they have these serial teeth that are on whorls and they're suspended Mm -hmm. by ligaments. And so they sort of feed like a conveyor by moving that apparatus. They do that to rasp out chunks out of a whale fall or anything else for that matter. When we first started doing work on hagfish, this took a a little bit of an interesting twist because with a lot of the deep sea fishes that we catch, we give everything a specimen number and put a label in its mouth before we start sampling it and everything. And the hagfish would immediately eat the labels. And these were, these were long ribbons, you know, long ribbon labels. And you stick one in the front of the mouth and they ah. just, and yeah. just suck it completely in. They are scavengers. And there's all of those videos of them on whale falls. And of course, we catch them in traps. So clearly they're scavenging them there too. Yeah. But there's video that, that actually suggests that they're predators as well. And they show them actually going down into small fish burrows, wormfish burrows, mm. things like That's that. We still have tons and tons of hagfish gut contents that haven't been analyzed that we, you know, we were gonna do basically a genetic analysis of the goo to figure out what they're scavenging on. But in the process we found particularly for eptotreatus, uh it wasn't uncommon for us to find intact fish mm. inside their stomachs. And so wow. they are also predator. Interesting. Uh, we did a lot of work looking at mercury bioaccumulation in hagfish in the Gulf of Mexico, and all, a lot of this work was following the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And there's this hypothesis that conditions set forth by the oil spill would make methylation of mercury easier and lead to higher bioaccumulation rates of mercury in fishes. So we looked at that in a number of species, and including the three species of hagfish, and. One of the things we, we found was that our mixine species had significantly higher mercury accumulation rates than the two eptotreatus. But also when we looked at stable isotopes in terms of their position on the food web, the mixine came out way higher on the food web than the two eptotreatus. Mm-hmm. We hypothesized both of those things were a result of the mixine predominantly being a scavenger. And so it's eating higher on the food yeah. chain and the eptotreatus actually having at least some component. Mm-hmm of their ecology involving predation. Interesting. The
1: slime, what potential applications do you see from the knowledge that you're generating?
3: I did my PhD on eggfish slime, and I did it in a lab that was a biomaterials lab at UBC. And that lab at the time was working on things like spider silk and other kinds of biological fibers. And one of the things we figured out is that the fibers that sort of reinforce the slime and hold that together have really impressive material properties. So they're not that much weaker than spider silk, which is known to be one of the most impressive fibrous materials known. The U S Navy is currently um, making materials based on hagfish slime proteins. Okay. The Navy was interested in developing a material that could disable a boat, but Hmm. do it in a way that was, eco-friendly and reversible. I think this came out of the sort of age of terrorism where you just don't know who your enemies are and you know, there might be a boat coming in and you don't know if it's a fisherman or if it's a terrorist. And so they, they wanted some options for stopping these vessels. And so they identified hagfish slime as a potential material that we could learn something from. That is so cool.
2: I'm convinced that they were developing essentially like Spider Man's wrist thing, you know, basically immobilized terrorists. Tell me I'm wrong. No, that's that's oh, actually hello? right.
3: You know, Spider-Man is not really bio-inspired, right? So silk has to be drawn out of a silk gland by an external force, whether it's the spider falling down or grabbing it with a leg. There are a few spiders that can shoot silk a little bit, but it's not accurate. But hagfish do shoot fibers out of their body, much more like Spider-Man does.
0: Ah, I'm thinking like airbags in cars. Imagine if you had slime that would just shoot out quickly.
3: Yeah, airbags for submarines. Yeah.
2: Ah. Good
1: segue into that accident down on the Oregon coast with those <laughs>
2: hagfish <laughs> bound for Korea where they eat them. I've used those images in that video in my lectures for ever since it occurred. I, I yeah, just it's an amazing
0: image. Yeah, what was the scene like? Maybe, guy, you could explain it so folks who haven't seen it. I, I don't know; if I'm it. the most qualified, but I mean, you see the
1: cleanup process. They got bulldozers in there. It's just a this is Highway 101 down Southern Oregon. It's just littered with hagfish carcasses, some still wiggling around. Just a white mucus. It's like if you've ever seen Ghostbusters and the ectoplasm just scattered all over the road and having to clean that up. And there's a Prius. It's just covered in covered. Cool. It
3: was. <laughs> It's gnarly. (laughs) Doug, have you tried to eat them?
0: I was just going to ask
2: that.
3: I ate um, one of the species you referred to earlier, Mixini McMillany, last summer. I thought it tasted pretty good.
2: I'm a big believer that, you know, unless it's an endangered species, you should eat your subject animal at least (laughs) once. And so for the graduation party of my student that was working on Hagfish in the Gulf of Mexico, I smoked some of both, both genera at my house and I didn't really know what I was doing, obviously. And so I just basically skinned them and gutted them and then smoked the whole body with the notochord intact. Mm. And once it was done, we sliced it up into little steaks, you know, little medallions. Whoa. Now, part of the problem was that I did not remove the notochord. I probably should have filleted them instead of staking them because yeah. I don't know if you've ever eaten the candy Rolo that has like the, mm. you know, the gooey caramel in the middle. Well, Mm -hmm. when you bit into the hagfish, this warm notochordal fluid (laughs) squeezed out of the steak into your mouth. You'll never eat a rollo again now.
3: So I witnessed somebody cook a hagfish. They skinned it, like Dane was talking about. Marinated it for a couple of days. I think they actually forgot about it in the fridge. This was at a marine lab. And after three days, they're like, oh, we need to cook that hagfish. So they got the chef involved and heated up some oil in a pan and threw this skinned hagfish into a pan and it started thrashing around in the pan oh we all sort of leapt back in horror and we figured out what happened was it wasn't alive but fish collagen has interesting properties so sometimes when you heat it it will contract and so when one side of the hagfish hit the hot oil it contracted which caused it to bend Mm. which caused it to sort of leap out of the pan. And then the other side hit, which caused it to bend. Oh so my it gosh. It's like <laughs> crashing around like it was alive.
2: I've wow. never seen that in person, but I've seen video <clears throat> of that. And, uh, oh, really? In free in restaurants, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Ah. I'm curious
0: how... Both of you got interested in hagfish. Like, what was your moment where you first connected with this fish and were like, I'm going to study this fish for a long time?
2: I've always been interested in the deep sea and anything unusual that's uh, relatively poorly studied. And, you know, the reproductive biology of hagfish is still an, an open book. We still don't really know how fertilization takes place. Doug mentioned Eptitritis deni, and that's named after Bashford Dean. And Bashford Dean published this huge volume on the biology of hagfish in 1895. Oh, wow. And a lot of what Bashford Dean published in 1895 is still state of our knowledge Wow. To, to, to the biology and life history of hagfish. Actually, the Royal Society of Denmark, they actually had a monetary award. Put forward to anybody who could provide evidence of the way the hagfish reproduce. That award was never claimed. So that's kind of what got me interested in hagfish as part of our deep sea research.
3: Like Dean, I've been obsessed with fish since I was a little kid. I did a master's degree on tuna physiology, bluefin tuna. And I did my PhD in a biomaterial lab. And so I had to choose what material I was going to work on. I had a Supervisor who really wanted me to work on spider silk because that's where most of his funding was coming from. I was adamant that I wanted to work on marine critters. I had seen hagfish as a student at a place called the Shoals Marine Lab, which is one of the few places as an undergrad you can go and catch hagfish. And they made a big impression on me. Hagfish and hagfish slime kept coming to the top of my list.
0: Seems like a perfect topic. That's so cool.
3: It worked out really well,
2: yeah.
0: Are these fish facing any threats?
2: It's obviously an out-of-date assessment now done by the IUCN, looking at uh, basically red list assessment of, at the time, all the known species. I think there were 75 or 77 species they assessed 12 years ago or so. And at that time, there were a number of them that were considered threatened or endangered primarily due to over-harvesting. Not only are they used for food, generally, if you buy any sort of product called eel skin, it's not eel, it's hagfish.
0: Oh, okay.
3: So one of the things that makes them vulnerable is that they're just really easy to catch. Okay. So, you know, you put a trap down, and if there's hagfish there, they will go into the trap and you will mm. catch them. And they're, they're very slow to reproduce as well. They make a small number of quite large eggs about 20 20 or so and so it's pretty easy to wipe out a population with not a lot of effort i saw this firsthand in the gulf of maine as a, a student at the shoals marine lab in 1991 we went out for an afternoon we put a hagfish trap down which was actually a trash barrel with holes in it basically mm-hmm. we ate our lunch we pulled the trap and it was full of several hundred hagfish oh wow and that was like an hour it was on the bottom. And now if we want to catch actfish, we have to leave the trap overnight. Sometimes we'll get a handful.
0: Okay. Is there any kind of regulation on the harvest?
3: I don't think there's any regulation <laughs> anywhere. Do you know, Dean? If- no, I don't think there
2: is either. And in the Gulf of Mexico, we're fortunate right now because there are relatively few deep sea fisheries in U.S. waters along the East Coast. And so for that reason, they don't get caught. There's a deep water red crab fishery, but it uses traps that most of the hagfish can get out of. And But in those same areas, we use very simple mesh traps that were meant for crawfish that you set in a freshwater stream for crawfish. And when we haul it back in from a thousand meters deep, if there are hagfish there, there may be a hundred hagfish. In fact, Mm -hmm. our biggest issue is with there being so many hagfish in a trap That the mucus fills the trap, and in the process of hauling it up, the weight of it, and the drag on it, hauling it up from
3: the depths, it will actually explode.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow. What are maybe the top three reasons people should care about hagfish?
3: I'll throw one out. You know, they're scavengers. They're keeping things tidy on the bottom of the ocean. Many of these species are really good at burrowing Mm -hmm. and spend most of their time in the sediment. And if their populations are big, you can imagine they could have a a big effect on things like sediment turnover and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think they're playing important roles in in most benthic ecosystems. Preserving biodiversity is incredibly important,
2: right? Hagfish represent a relatively small group from this really ancient lineage. If we were to lose hagfish, that's a, a... huge arm of the evolutionary tree of chordates that we would lose. So we should all be excited about hagfish and want to see them thrive.
0: I am excited about them. They're just cool. Their whole slime thing They're is super amazing. Cool. They're super cool. cool.
2: <laughs> if you want to make a splash in your scientific career, study hagfish because anything you do is publishable It's just such a wide open area. You could be a big fish to uh, a big hagfish. That is,
3: if a a student wants to take up hagfish as a subject area. And I was so fortunate for events to lead me to hagfish for my PhD because it really was this area that there was a little bit known and that was enough to get me started. Lots of work to be done. You know, I, I do worry about hagfish conservation, but I also realized that you know, they've probably been around for 400 million years is probably an underestimate. So they've seen a few things. They have survived some of the most horrific mass extinction events on mm-hmm. this planet. So hopefully, even if we wipe ourselves out, the hagfish <laughs> will, will still be around. Fortunately, I think that will
2: probably be the case.
0: Fortunately, Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This was fascinating. Appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. This was fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, this is great. Got me thinking about Hackfish again.
0: (laughs) Again. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebek, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montakeem. Post-production by Alex Brouwer. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.
1: I wrote that their mouth looks like a butt with teeth on the cheeks, but that's not really going to lead us anywhere.